Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. A herd mentality. Most of us, likely all of us, are helpless to it. Sports fans, I'm one of them. Why are we so devout to a group of grown men or women playing what for most of us are games we only took part in as children? Because emblazoned across their chests is the name of our city? Pretty much, I guess. Though I know plenty of people who seem to pick their team out of a hat. You'd be hard-pressed to find an athlete who is actually from the place they apparently represent. Or a fan who is that passionate about the honor of their city outside of the stadium. I'll just come out and say it. Being a sports fan, like an extreme fan with a whirly bird on your head and, you know, fucking pom-poms, is sad. The more passionate you are, the larger the hole in your real life, no doubt. It is a supplement, and the corporations know just how to deliver it to you. Play on your need to feel a part of something. Sure, it's fun, it's exciting to paint our faces, get loaded in a parking lot, and chant childish war cries before entering the arena and politely taking our seats, where we then order a $15 beer and a, I don't know, $12 hot dog. It's tribal, and goes way back to the dawn of time, a time where if you weren't accepted, you'd most certainly die. We hunted, collected, and built in packs. We lived in small communities where each subgroup was dependent on the other for survival. It was a necessity to be able to fit in, and for some of us, it was our destiny to lead be the captain of our team, the head of our tribe. In extreme situations, the commander of our unit. In war. And that's what it is, having a team. It's, at least part of it, our lust for war. Our desire to destroy and conquer or defend and teach. War brings change and, like a forest fire, initially is devastating, but clears the way for something new. My team's reign or yours. Democrat-Republican, Yankees-Red Sox, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. Justin! And sometimes we jump onto a bandwagon of which is driven by a maniac, someone who leads because they're out of control. They can't possibly follow because they're too busy plowing ahead, driven by their personal needs, needs for control, for power, for wealth. And if we are desperate enough to be a part of a group, we might fall in line behind one of these assholes blindly following, doing things we would never do if left to our own devices, and all in the spirit of feeling a part of something, even if that something entails tearing one of our own down, and then open. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 21, The Zed Team. 
village of Percy, Maine, Northeast England. Winter, 2016. A parade of misfits waddle in almost single file down St. Stephen's Lane. It's cold, dreary, and every member of the group clutch themselves tight with their second-hand store coats as they follow their leader, who, unlike the rest, appears warm and appropriately dressed for the weather. Also, unlike the rest, he doesn't walk or waddle. He rolls, almost regally ahead in a motorized wheelchair. This horrible man doesn't need the chair. It's a scam, a manipulation. This is how Zahid Zaman, a.k.a. Zed, figuratively, rolls. He is the type who spends all of his time working towards ways to not work. The group who tail dutifully behind are completely under Zed's control. The home they depart from is covered with cameras that document this sad march, as they have every other past group excursion, that always leads down the street to the other townhouse, the one Zed rents to three of his four lackeys. All five in the clan, including Zed, are on some sort of social assistance, and of course, all proceeds go directly to Zed. This man, who in 2016 is just entering his 40s, has the entire street under his thumb. Neighbors peek nervously out through the curtains as the motley crew pass. Zed is hardly imposing on sight, but everyone knows he can get up if he wanted. Penny Lovely, a neighbor directly behind Zed, had seen him shoveling sand one day in his yard. Another local could testify without doubt that his fearsome neighbor was mobile after Zed popped up out of his wheelchair and chased him up and over a fence during a disagreement. Many are intimidated by the convincing rumors he has gang connections and is not to be trifled with. But besides all of this, Zed is known to constantly have a body cam on him, which documents his every interaction, interactions of which he's been known to manipulate and use to blackmail acquaintances. Yet another neighbor will later share that after an altercation with Zed, their house was burned down by some junkie, paid off with a bottle of liquid morphine. Another almost had his children taken away with the cleverly edited footage Zed had accrued of him. His close circle, which at the moment is more of a crooked line as it trails lazily behind him, avoiding puddles of slush that Zed intentionally sprays up with his spinning tires, knows better than anyone that Zed is a dangerous man. They see it daily, his fits of rage that at worst ramp up from insults to the random physical assault of one of them, and at best come to a head with Zed smashing holes in the walls of one of his properties with a hammer. Behind Zed waddle three miserable women and one corpse-like man. Closest to Zed walks his former and likely still sometimes lover, 54-year-old Kay Rayworth. Kay and Zed live together. The house they've just exited at 75 St. Stephen's Lane used to be hers and hers alone. That was up until she met Zed, who took over every facet of her life. Now she's told what to do, where to be, how to think, what to eat, what not to eat, no bacon. Zed is a half-hearted Muslim, no speaking out of line, or it's a stick over the backside. No contact with her kids. They've been ripping her off. Zed at one point tallied the amount Kay's son was costing them by living in his own home and handed the young man a bill one day for 2,700 pounds. Kay, who, before Zed came along, had a job as a personal support worker, an active social life, and a good relationship with her kids, now only has Zed and the degrading tasks of which he constantly sets her to. Behind Kay and slightly to her left, stumbles 50-year-old Myra Wood. Myra had met Zed back in 2010. He had been nice in the beginning, and she had become so enamored by him that her own children fell to the wayside as their relationship developed. 
Her job as a cleaner barely helped to make ends meet, and in 2013 she was arrested for theft. During her four-month stint, Zed stayed in close contact, and when she was released, he offered her a place to stay. It was at this point that everything changed. Zed had been approved for funding that was to be used to hire a caregiver. He hired Myra for the job, but she soon found that the duties she was expected to fulfill went beyond just cleaning the house and making meals. Zed became violent. He would hit Myra when she didn't perform as he wished, and even was rumored to force her to have sex with his dog. When he wasn't demanding, she have sex with him. Zed had a collection of bestiality videos and enjoyed the genre not so much for its sexual nature, but for the degradation of those on the receiving end of an animal's blind desire. Myra, by this point, is completely beaten down. She follows Zed's scooter down the street, bleary-eyed and distant. Her eyes only spark to life when she turns and angrily tells the remaining two stragglers to hurry the fuck up, causing the hint of a smile to appear on Zed's smug and recently shaved face, a face constantly kept groomed by Myra's dutiful routine of ensuring her master stays comfortable, clean, and above all else, satisfied. Ann Corbett grabs her boyfriend Jimmy's skinny wrist and rushes to catch up. She's in her mid-twenties and nearly two decades younger than the man she roughly drags behind her. Jimmy and Ann had met at a soup kitchen in 2013. This is where Jim had originally met Zed, who, as a cheap bastard, would often take advantage of the free meals provided there. The group are headed to the townhouse of which this couple call home along with Myra Wood. Like everyone else, they are on social assistance and their money goes directly to Zed to pay for rent and for being allowed to hang out with them. Jimmy isn't doing so hot. Lately, the group has taken to focusing their angst on him. He's a nice man, easygoing, and that's why he's being turned on. Like a pack of wolves, the group senses him to be a weak link, and for the past weeks have been slowly tearing him down, challenging him to toughen up or perish. Zed had some tools stolen from him and it's certain that Jimmy and his girlfriend Anne and her brother had something to do with it. This is possible, maybe even likely, but the abuses Jimmy Proud has been suffering as a result are far from an appropriate punishment. Beneath his shirt, his skin is black from bruising, and the stab wounds are beginning to fester, not to mention the mess in his underwear. The ragtag group finally reached their destination, 35 St. Stephen's Lane. And though Zed is in a wheelchair, it's Jimmy who has the greatest trouble climbing the stairs and entering the home. The worst of the abuse is over. Now, Jimmy is just praying that he can get some sleep and hopefully never wake up. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... <laughs> Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. 
Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Jimmy's exhausted. His body and mind are at war with each other, however, making it impossible to fully drift away. Someone is screaming at him to shut up, to quit moaning. Is he moaning? If so, he has no control over it. The beatings had left him so deeply bruised that there is no comfortable position. Even crunching into the always comforting fetal position shoots tremendous pain through his genitals. He can't remember exactly why this had happened to him. Didn't he have kids? And a wife? Who are these people? Jimmy had had a wife, but that was in the 90s. They'd split in 2000, and the 15 or so years since had been a blur of drugs and alcohol, sleeping on the streets and living the life of a homeless man. Meals from soup kitchens, the only part of his days that held some semblance of normalcy. Zed. Zed had taken him in, set him up with financial assistance, and given him a place to stay. This place. Zed, he whispers, and it all comes in a flood as his chest begins to hitch and someone wraps a pair of pants tight around his neck. The tools. Had he taken them? He didn't think so. Maybe. Hard to remember. Zed had smashed him so hard, so many times with a blunt object, that it was impossible to remember anything for certain. There were three lives. The one before the streets, the one on the streets, and the hell he'd been living since Zed had accused him of taking the tools. The doctor had said his scapula had been damaged. He remembers asking what his scapula was. It sounds like spatula. And that's all he can think of that something the size of a spatula has snapped in his shoulder. A stupid thought, but it works for Jimmy. To imagine a spatula snapping while pressing down a burger too hard, then continuing to try and work with it as it dangles uselessly, swiping over the burger until the meat erupts into flames, engulfing the broken kitchen tool with it. It did burn, but not more than the wounds. One of them had stabbed him forever one night. They weren't deep enough punctures to cause any mortal damage but they hurt like hell all the same they'd taken him to the doctor multiple times Zed had done all the talking glaring at him to nod along to the claims that he'd been jumped there was a doctor's note that Zed wanted he needed a paper trail Jimmy had heard him whisper to one of the girls his teeth had always been an issue years on the street and the neglect that ensued had done them no favors that part of this ordeal the part where they'd been pulled from his head like stumpy weeds was somehow the least traumatic. He'd helped even, and though it hurt like hell, the numbness of his gums now provided a point of focus that he could use to distract from the all-encompassing pain his body was experiencing. Then there was the dog, 
The dog who's barking now as the pants around his neck loosen. Then a gag is shoved into his mouth. At Zed's direction. Zed's here, he thinks. Oh no. Here we go again. It was Zed who made him fuck the dog. Fucking the dog. He'd been accused of doing so before on job sites, but never had he actually done it. For real. That was hard to think about. Hard to do, too. God, how that thing had snapped and snarled. Wait. No, the dog had fucked him. That's right. It hadn't really got him, but it had seemed to please everyone else to think so. So he'd given it his all. A fine performance that kept Zed's sadism satiated for the night. But the worst thing, Jimmy thinks, as the gag seems to swell and the world begins to narrow to a pinprick of light, is that they'd held him down, cut open his ball sack, and sliced out one of his testicles. They'd removed that testicle, plopped it into a cup of hot water, and made him eat it. All the while Zed laughing in his face as the ladies looked on fascinated. But what was somehow more terrible, worse even than enduring a hot bolt cauterizing his torn scrotum, is that he'd been so hungry that it had tasted pretty decent. Jimmy is dead, and the four people standing above him are thankful for some silence. Zed orders two of the women to wrap him up tight in sleeping bags, then the group head outside, where they plop the body into a manual wheelchair and go for a midnight stroll. They dump Jimmy deep into a patch of forest, then head back home, where they have a bonfire and a garbage can. Whatever evidence remains of Jimmy Prout having been in this world is thrown into the flames. The group huddle over the blaze, muttering amongst one another of the plan moving forward. Zed looks distrustingly over at Anne, Jimmy's now former girlfriend, and the only one of his clan that he hadn't had ample time to break down. And he thinks to himself, This one, I can't trust. This one will break. He decides then and there that Anne will take the fall. The disappearance of Jimmy Prout goes unnoticed until Zed, after having kicked Anne out of his other property, calls the authorities himself and reports Anne and Jimmy missing. When the police arrive to interview him, Zed turns on the waterworks. He's worried, he says, that Anne has done something to Jimmy or vice versa. An investigation begins and soon, Jimmy's body is discovered in the nearby woods. A neighbor shares that she had seen Jimmy not too long ago when she exited her home to head to work in the morning. He'd been laying on her property, shivering, dressed completely inappropriate for the cold weather. He was incoherent, and when she tried to offer help, he'd gotten up and stumbled away. It's her belief that maybe he'd been having some sort of breakdown and had found his way into the woods where he succumbed to the elements. Police immediately dismiss this theory as they know that the way Jimmy had been found, wrapped extremely tight in two sleeping bags, had to be the handiwork of someone else, maybe even a team. The investigation's focus naturally turns to Zed and his crew. Ann Corbett is located and arrested under suspicion for the murder of Jimmy Prout. She immediately begins to point a finger at the others, and Zed, Kay, and Myra are picked up next. A search of Zed's house uncovers a confession note written by Ann Corbett. It reads, quote, I thought if I could convince them I had learning difficulties, I could get away with it and blame Kay, Myra, and Zed. 
It was me that killed him, not them. They had nothing to do with it. End quote. This letter obviously had been written under duress. Zed had gotten Anne to write it before kicking her out and planned on using it, but hadn't had enough time for his plans to materialize. A treasure trove of video was uncovered, but of all the surveillance Zed had been hoarding, there appeared to be nothing available from around the time Jimmy likely died. Luckily, footage from a nearby ATM machine captured Anne Corbett withdrawing money from Jimmy's account as the rest of the crew huddled nearby. Faced with this video, Ann Corbett confesses to having strangled to death Jimmy Prout with a pair of jeans. She soon changes the story, claiming that Myra Wood had complained of Jimmy making too much noise and called Zed and Kay over to help shut him up. When they arrived, Zed ordered a gag be put in Jimmy's mouth, and soon after, Jimmy had stopped moaning and then died. At trial, all four defendants plead guilty to perverting the course of judgment as they all clearly had lied to police and hidden their knowledge of Jimmy's death. Myra Wood and Kay Hayworth are cleared of murder charges. Myra receives nine years for her part, and Kay receives twelve. Both Ann Corbett and Zahid Zed Zaman are held mainly responsible for the death of Jimmy Prout. Ann is sent away for 27 years, and Zed for 33, this being the amount of time to be served before becoming eligible for parole. The judge made a statement at the end of trial. Quote, no reasonable person could learn what happened to Jimmy Prout in the months leading up to his death and not feel shocked and appalled that anyone could be treated with such vicious cruelty and inhumanity. I have no doubt these beatings and mistreatments were repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, and left Jimmy living in a constant fear. The injuries were disgusting, vile, and designed to insult and humiliate him. End quote. This true crime tale, like Jimmy Prout's life, ends rather unceremoniously. The Zed team was only as strong as Zed's belief that he had full control of his clan, you see. And the moment he doubted that, it all fell apart. His hold, his power, was an illusion, much like the hold anything has on any of us, unless it has a material strength, like rope or cuffs. If you're not roped or cuffed, you're free and only restrained by the binds you allow your mind to believe are real. And it's important to remember that loyalty need go two ways, or else it morphs into dependence. I think that Jimmy Prout, after enduring such a hard life, maybe felt it fitting to suffer a hard death. Maybe felt he deserved it for letting down Zed, a man who despite the way he treated Jimmy, at least paid him some attention. An incredibly sad thought. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com.